Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. In a weird way, I kind of feel like the individual investor drives Wall Street decisions because Wall Street is trying to make sure A, they don't lose clients and B, they show how wonderful their all-weather portfolios are or whatever. It almost feels like the retail investors driving Wall Street, but it feels like Wall Street is driving the retail investor because they're the ones that get the airtime on Fox Business or CNBC going, that's right, we're rotating into recovery. But then it's crazy how quickly they change their minds because then yesterday we start seeing the slight rotation back into tech and then you get the suits, as they're called now, the suits going on CNBC. Oh, we're seeing the re-rotation, the re-re-rotation. It's like, oh my gosh. In this episode, we're chatting with Kevin from Meet Kevin. With more than 1.5 million YouTube followers and over 315 million views, Kevin's platform is all about sharing his knowledge and experience in finance. Kevin's always had an eye for growing both professionally and financially. He started his real estate business at the age of 19 with just $10,500. Since launching his YouTube channel in 2013, Kevin has expanded his coverage from real estate to investing, and in the process, has become a voice for a new generation of curious investors. Thank you for joining me, Meet Kevin. It's really interesting for me because I was on your podcast. You were one of the most recent ones that I've done. So funny how the tables have turned. And <laughs> I'd say I was a little bit in the hot seat about two months ago when I joined uh, on your podcast. And recently you've been you've been in the news a little bit yourself. How has that been for you? Yeah, it's been great, actually. Thank you. Thank you, by the way, for that. You know, when I first started my real estate business, I quickly learned that no press is bad press. And that was because I made a TV commercial and that TV commercial was comparing a real estate agent who doesn't answer the phone because he's in a room playing World of Warcraft, not answering the phone, and happy that his phone was going to voicemail. But the World of Warcraft community got a little upset about that because they thought I was making fun of them. So I got a lot of negative attention for my first TV commercial ever as a real estate broker. But that actually ended up leading to more people knowing about my real estate business. So I came to find that no press is sometimes the worst press. So, uh, hey, you know, I'll, I'll take a good roast and uh, people can make their own conclusions. <laughs> okay, so you've had some experience. This isn't the first time you've been roasted uh, publicly. <laughs> exactly. Tell the listeners, I'm sure a lot of them already know you, but for those that don't, describe your life and what you do a little bit so that people can understand who Meet Kevin is. Sure, absolutely. I became a real estate agent uh, right before my 19th birthday. I helped people over two or three hour coffee meetings learn why they should buy real estate and especially why they should buy fixer uppers. And I, I think I overwhelmed people because I was so excited with you you gotta buy this house because it's a fixer upper it's gonna make you a lot of money and the people that did were so excited and they would come back and buy more people that didn't or like Kevin I wish I had bought some of those fixer uppers and that really got me inspired to share my message on YouTube somewhere around eight years into my my real estate career and I made a YouTube channel uh, sharing the same thoughts like here yeah, basically my three-hour coffee meetings on YouTube just broken up into little 10-minute 
minute videos. Yeah, tried to make him entertaining, jump out of bushes and talk about concepts. And uh, people really enjoyed that. And, and so from there, I've uh, evolved my business into providing uh, commentary on what's going on in the news, the media, anything related to money, whether it's politics, stimulus, infrastructure package, real estate investing, stock investing. And it's been a blast. How did you get into real estate when you were 19? Were your parents involved in real estate or did you just kind of pick it up by yourself? Yeah, I was uh, in high school uh, working at Jamba Juice, making eight bucks an hour. And my girlfriend at the time, I was living with her parents. I moved to California at 17 to live with her and her parents. And uh, she was getting her real estate license because her father was retiring as a real estate broker. And I thought to myself, well, if my girlfriend's gonna get a real estate license, I may as well get my real estate license too. Uh, I had no intention of ever becoming a real estate agent. I always thought I was gonna end up being a cop or working for the FBI or, or something like that. But yeah, that's uh, figured out. The questions don't seem that hard. Let me get my license too, why not? I wasn't, wasn't doing much in high school anyways. <laughs> why not? Yeah, yeah. You've said your first word of advice when suggesting people start building passive income through real estate is to be fearless. So what does that mean to you? What does that actually look like? Yeah, I think it's me that comes from when I bought my first house. I just remember getting phone calls. Well, the flooring guy called me. I was Kevin. I've got really bad news. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the last thing I need in this complicated escrow is really bad news because it was like a six month escrow right after the recession, everything's in crisis mode. Everybody's second guessing as to whether or not there's gonna be a double dip. Oh, it's gonna be a double dip. It's gonna be worse than the first one. The second round's never worse than the first one, but everybody thinks it is. So you have all this negativity going around. The flooring guy, bad news, Kevin, really bad news. Nine inch asbestos tiles under your flooring. Oh no. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, asbestos, this is horrible. Now I laugh at it. Now it's like, seriously, that's all you got? <laughs> you know, I've become so desensitized. Now I call real estate toothpicks and paper because it's really, I mean, it's so simple. It's two by fours and some drywall on one side, stucco on the other. And it's not as complicated as we think when we first buy a house. The problems that we think there are, whether there's mold or lead, I look at these as opportunities. I look at it as let everybody else be fearful. I'll put on a P100 respirator and I'll fix it. <laughs> Very cool. And then you're, you're giving people advice who are asking you how to get into the business, how to buy their first house. And you start hearing from people that your advice is so good, you should go on YouTube. Is that kind of how you made the, the transition? One of the things that helped was I used to make YouTube videos in like 2010, 11, just to have videos in my website on my website. And they were stupid videos, I thought. I mean, they were like how to check the water pressure on your house and like what the right range is or whatever. And I would just make them silly or like what I do when I'm bored at an open house and I take out Windex and I start cleaning the windows for the owner. <laughs> but I would pass out flyers in neighborhoods and people would answer the door and like, we love your videos, Kevin, they're so funny. And I'm like, oh, they're just like five videos embedded on the webpage. Like, why are they so funny? Like, whatever. But yeah, I think that helped kind of set the groundwork for, okay, I guess people like videos. Then I saw other people start making YouTube videos about real estate on YouTube. And I'm like, uh-uh, nobody talking about my business without my opinion. <laughs> so that's what started that. Really me actually trying to do YouTube more seriously when I saw other people doing this was 2017. Okay, so it's been four years. And if you look today, how would you say you spend your time one thing that I found really interesting, I look at your YouTube channel and it's like 
a video every three or four hours, right? It's around the clock. So a lot of the people that are writing comments on your videos are like, I, I don't understand how this person can be, he must work 27 hours a day or something like that. There's <laughs> literally a two hour video coming on every one hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's intense. I, I wake up and I go right into the studio and then I'll work all day. I think the things that have really helped me have been things that really simplify my process. So for example, after I make a video, I can walk out my double doors that I got, my sound doors, and I can play with the kids. So I can have like these micro opportunities to spend time with family and sword fight with the kids or wrestle with the kids are three and five, both boys. And so that way I'm kind of getting a mix of family and work. And so I post a video, I go out and play with the family, I'll eat a little bit, I'll read a little bit, and then I come back. And the big thing about my videos is I don't try to overproduce them. The big thing is I wanna help people learn. And for me, I can explain things, in my opinion, easily by just using a little whiteboard if I need to, or a flow chart on an iPad. Sometimes I just need to talk and people can just listen and, and learn something. And what about your background? How much do you spend refining your background? Does it have a significance? You know, I see a lot of purple. Is purple your favorite color? Because I think it, it makes a difference, you know, and I, I love colors. I love just like uh, delight and scrolling through YouTube. I kind of notice, you know, people that spend time designing a delightful background. It kind of draws me in a little bit more. And I think yours is actually fairly delightful. That's why I wanted to ask about it. Yeah, it's one of those where, and I always thought this way when I was a uh, new real estate agent as well, launch, then revise. I think so many folks are so nervous about launching a business or launching their set for their YouTube or whatever. Just launch and then revise. And so this has really been four years of the making. When you looked at my set a year ago, it's a disaster compared to what it is now. If you looked at it two years ago, there is no set. So it's really just been over time, I've added little things, I've revised the positioning or, or the zoom on the camera. The purple kind of just stuck over time. I tried red for a very brief period of time, but red and people hearing meet Kevin, those didn't send the right signal. So it was <laughs> just trial and error. No, that makes sense. Purple's actually my favorite color. Nice. Those that know me well know that I have a fascination with it. Do you give people advice who want to create a YouTube following? I'm sure mm. people ask you like, how can I do what you do? What are some of the less intuitive pieces of advice that you can give? Yeah, uh, this is true. I have a YouTube course where I just go through my theory and yep. it's very unique to me on how I believe YouTube functions. So it's my opinions on the algorithm and setups and things like that. An example of this is I think when people think about making YouTube videos, they believe the answer is get out there and start shouting and being the loudest, most colorful person with the craziest titles and doing whatever you can to go, hey, look at me. But I, I kind of liken that to somebody being that drunk person in a bar. They're loud, they're obnoxious, they're falling off their chair. They're more abrasive than they are interesting, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, please, somebody get this person out. Like. That was a good freak show, but I don't want that person coming back in the bar because it's annoying. My opinion is 
You want to be on YouTube. You want to be the person that comes into a bar. You sit down with maybe a group of four or five friends. Maybe you're the last one that shows up. There's a conversation already happening. You sit down at the table and you listen to what everybody's talking about. What's topical? And let's say, uh, you know, maybe this sounds like a boring bar conversation, but it's relevant. People are sitting at the bar like, I don't know, man, I'm buying crypto because I, I think there's going to be hyperinflation or whatever. And they're having a conversation about this. You want to be the person that's able to sit down and go calmly. Hey, folks, that's totally can happen. Here are some of the thoughts that I have on why I think we might actually not see that. And then actually have some good insight to where people are like, oh, I, I want to listen to this. Like you want it to where when people are listening to you, they're actually leaning into what you're saying. Like, that is interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. I think a lot of people can't figure out how to toe the line of presenting a contrary view to what most viewers would probably believe in. Yeah. They almost do it apologetically. They're like, hey, I know we all, you know, believe this. Forgive me for telling you that some people believe this, but you do it in a way that kind of educates people and is very enlightening. That's sort of a unique skill. I'm going to ask a little bit about investing now. So I saw a video you did, I think last week, where you walked your customers through all of your investment accounts. And I saw you had your Robinhood account, you had your Webull account, your M1 finance account. So you're actually investing quite a bit of money across various platforms. And when do you find time to do that? What's your routine there like? The beautiful thing about my content is it is all based on investing. And so really these worlds have merged. And what's so wonderful is people will post real estate deals in my private group, for example, and I'll analyze their real estate deal and it keeps me up on the real estate market. People say, hey, here's my high conviction thesis for why I'm investing in Palantir, for example. And then I'll go through their thesis and then I'll add my own thoughts, my own questions, and then they'll come back with responses to my concerns. And so really, even though it's like, oh, spending all day making videos, so much my content is based on what I'm researching anyway. Now, there's a lot of time that people don't see that I spend offline as well. Reading is big. People make fun of me for still reading the newspaper, but Look, you could sit around all day long and refresh CNBC and only get the little red bar headlines of what's the biggest hit pieces, but you miss all of the stuff that's like on page 14, let's say, of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or page eight of the Financial Times. And in there, you get these really amazing pieces of these expert economists or whatever who are writing their opinion pieces on, here's what I think about inflation, here's what I think about this stock. And it's really incredible. So reading the paper is one of the, the most wonderful wonderful things that I do because it gets me exposure to all these perspectives and I'm not subject to this constant, oh, new news update. It's just the paper doesn't change. It comes once a day and then I can go through it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the connection between real estate and investing in stocks and also cryptos is very interesting because, you know, a lot of people think of them as very separate things. I wrote this article in January that talked about the evolution of what we call the American dream, right? It used to be back in the 60s and 70s when the notion was still created that you get a 30-year fixed mortgage. That was kind of the big innovation, right? You buy a house, you live in it, but it's also kind of the bulk of your investment. And that's what was sold as the American ideal, like buying a house yeah. as early as possible, getting home ownership and using it to build your wealth. And you understand both sides of this, but what I wrote about was, hey, you have something now that's substantially easier and more cost effective, yes. right? You look at the performance of 
the stock market versus real estate over the past hundred years. And there was actually a really interesting study. People assume that real estate's this awesome investment, but there was a study that looked at Amsterdam mm -hmm. right on the waterfront, which is a very high end market. And there's like really good data on how it's performed over 400 or 500 years or something like that. And they found that actually it's very close to inflation. So the price appreciation yeah. over a really long period of time is close to the rate of inflation. So you're kind of not really making a ton of money on average. But with stocks and US equity markets over the past 100 years, it's greatly exceeded inflation on average. Then you have the fact that it's liquid and you can buy and sell intraday. You know about the commission structure on real estate pretty intimately, right? It's you're paying two and a half, five percent to both sides. So you have something where you're being charged five percent commission. It's a liquid. And in many ways, you're using 20 to one leverage or something of that nature. And that's kind of the American dream. So what I've been saying is you've got in your pocket a way to deploy any amount of money into the entire universe of stocks, commission-free now. You can use leverage, but generally the leverage you use is much less and much, much more sort of like apparently disclosed. And I'm kind of wondering, did you have a similar kind of thought process or how did you make the connection between real estate and investing and start transitioning into kind of more of the investing content? I think everything you said is valid about real estate. One thing that uh, doesn't get talked about in real estate is the ability to, and, and this is, it's harder, it, it takes effort. It absolutely takes a lot more effort than swiping up on the stock. And, and I'll talk about the pleasures of just swiping up. But one of the things that is so beautiful about real estate, uh, the easiest way to exemplify it is my first deal, is if we had taken our you know $18,000 and put it into the S&P 500, we would have tripled that money over the last, uh, whatever, nine years here. We would have tripled our money, which is awesome. That $18,000 would be like $56,000. Great. Maybe I could have margined it 20% and maybe it would have been 70 or $80,000. Fine. With real estate though, we were able to take that $18,000 and we were able to do something unique. And this is why starting with real estate was so wonderful for us because we were able to buy a place for $305,000. And this is the key right here in a $450,000 neighborhood. The place a lot of people thought, oh, this is going to need $150,000 worth of work, licensed contractors, high-end kitchen, all this stuff. We looked at it and said, no, no, we're going to do the project for 50K. We're going to go to Ikea. We're going to do, you know, maybe not the highest of end of everything, but it's going to look beautiful. It'll be rental grade. And so now we're into a deal for 350 in a 450K neighborhood. And all of a sudden what we've done is we've increased our net worth from $18,000 to that same $18,000, which was our down payment, to now an additional $100,000 in equity that we have because we're into a house for 350, 355-ish. That's now worth 450, 455. We've gotten into this with $18,000. So all of a sudden our net worth exploded. Now, if we were to sell that house today, which we've refinanced, but even considering that, if we were to sell that house today, we would walk away with somewhere around $270,000. $270,000 is almost 4X, the, well, it is 4X, the, the $60,000 we would have had in the S&P 500. And the reason we were able to do that is because we were able to put 3.5% down. And this is where that leverage comes up. We put 3.5% down. That's where we're really making money is where we're, we have the opportunity to leverage in, but also get something below market value, which we can't do in stocks. When I buy Tesla at 640, the market price of Tesla is 640. It's almost like a commodity, right? There's no difference between your Tesla stock and mine. In housing, 
There's a big difference between a $400,000 neighborhood where they're all three bedroom, two bath houses, let's say, but that one that's got the mold and the asbestos, it's got the fear factor and that makes them so much cheaper. Now, obviously the market's gotten very competitive recently. So sometimes that wedge, I call it, is a little harder to get, but that explosion in net worth you can get buying something below market value is something you can't get with stocks, but it takes the expertise, the time and the skill. So now going to what you're saying, why am I focused so heavily on stocks right now? It's because in my opinion, once you get to a certain net worth, maybe that's 500K, a million dollars, whatever, at some point it makes sense to stop going out and swinging the hammer and doing all these wedge deals because it's so much easier for me to just sit here and go, cool, I got paid, swipe up on Robinhood, throw it into Tesla or Etsy or Redfin or Palantir or Peloton, some of my favorites, and just go back to playing with my kids. <laughs> you know, there's, there's less stress. Now I will say if you take out leverage, well, this is another potential downside is if things flash crash in stocks, which can happen, I'm going to get a margin call. If things crash in real estate, as long as I'm making my payment, which if I need to get roommates, if I need to rent out the entire house, I'm still going to be able to make that payment. Even if I need to have a little bit of a negative cash flow, I'm not going to get margin called on it because the banks can't do that. They're not allowed to margin call me on real estate. And that's another one of the, the benefits there. Now, for people starting out, generally what I say is, hey, Put your money into stocks as you start out, get pre-approved, try to get into a wedge deal when you find it and do both is what I recommend. But that's sort of been my transition from going from like this all real estate and getting deals below market value, a lot of work going into it. Maybe I had a competitive advantage as a real estate agent to now where it just makes sense to swipe up. <laughs> oh, it makes a lot of sense. And tell me with your videos, how did you make that transition between only covering real estate to covering what seems like predominantly investing and kind of like these macroeconomic trends. When did that transition happen? It was really when COVID hit because when COVID hit, nobody cared about five ways to make passive income with your first thousand dollars. Nobody cared. People wanted to know what the heck is happening. Now, when Jerome Powell comes out and makes an insane announcement to cut rates on a Sunday, you know things are getting ugly. <laughs> Jerome Powell doesn't come out on a Sunday very often. <laughs> and, and people want to know, wait a minute, what's happening? And so it was really then when I realized, okay, well, I can comment on this. And I realized, whoa, people really care about this. I mean, that really shows itself in the views. It's really simple. If you make 10 videos and uh, look at my real estate renovation gets 60,000 views and the, uh, oh my gosh, look at what Jerome Powell just said, gets 300,000 views. <laughs> I mean, it'd be stupid to keep doing the real estate videos. I, I hate to say that because I love my real estate videos and I still try to provide those because I know that's what people look for. But the incentives tell you where to go on YouTube. It's very simple. Totally. I've noticed that your stimulus check videos have been very popular. Was it the stimulus check videos that sort of first broke 1 million views on your channel? This is true. Yeah. And so that came from, I remember when COVID hit, I was making videos about, are we going into martial law? It's so weird to think that that was actually a consideration back then that, oh my gosh, there might be police and, and army men and women on the street and we might be locked in here. That's why all the toilet paper is selling out. And so that really transitioned to, oh my gosh, this news, people are interested about this. And then this PPP thing came out and people are, oh wow, people are really interested in this PPP. And then, then it's like, oh, people are interested in when their stimulus check is coming. Absolutely. When they did the EIDL grants and it was 
put your information in here and get a free thousand dollars. I mean, that video went number one trending on YouTube. It was the first video on my channel to break a million views. I mean, you'd be stupid not to make more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let me ask you, do you think the old guard is portraying individual investors in a fair light right now? There's been a lot of, call it intergenerational discourse, right? You have the folks on CNBC talking about the irrationality of the young investor. Mm -hmm. You've been called kind of the CNBC of Gen Z. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's very flattering, first of all. Uh, thank you for that. I would say one of the things that I believe is Wall Street is highly incentivized to maintain clients, whether those are pension funds, which ultimately are driven by people and boards, and it all comes down to the individual investors, even though it all floats up to these big funds and the Vanguard funds and Black Rocks and pension funds and all this, it all comes down to people's perceptions. In a weird way, I have this belief that when, for example, here recently, we had this big rotation from tech to recovery. And I almost think that when people, individual people are like, oh, okay, we're rotating over to recovery stocks and they flood over to recovery stocks. I almost feel like sometimes Wall Street reiterates that. That's right, we are putting recovery stocks all over on our sheets because they're trying to maintain clients. And so in a weird way, I kind of feel like the individual investor drives Wall Street decisions because Wall Street is trying to make sure A, they don't lose clients and B, they show how wonderful their all weather portfolios are or whatever. And in a weird way, it, it almost feels like the retail investors driving Wall Street, but it feels like Wall Street is driving the retail investor because they're the ones that get the airtime on Fox Business or CNBC going, that's right, we're rotating into recovery. But then it, it's crazy how quickly they change their minds because then yesterday we start seeing the slight rotation back into tech and then you get, the suits, as they're called now, the suits going on CNBC. Oh, we're seeing the re-rotation, the re-re-rotation. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so in some sense, I really think the individual investor and their sentiments drives Wall Street, but then Wall Street reiterates that drive. Uh, that's just my belief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's so many different players involved and so many market participants. You know, you have the institutions, you have retail, that sometimes it's hard to kind of extricate what's happening. One interesting stat was, you probably saw this a little bit, but the week of January 25th, which was the week of your birthday, also the week that Robinhood was, was in the news uh, quite a bit, News came out the following week that retail investors were actually net sellers of GME stock between Monday and Wednesday. So, you know, Robinhood and other brokers put in restrictions on buying it on Thursday. But even before then, I think it was counterintuitive for people to find out that retail investors were net sellers. Of course, presumably what that means is institutions were, were buying it, right? Yep. yep. I believe that. I believe that individual traders oftentimes get possibly too emotional and end up with losses in their portfolios quickly. I think in aggregate, retail investors see trends before Wall Street does. And so that goes to your point, and I completely agree with that. So in total, I think retail is first, and they see things first, very, very smart in aggregate. On the individual level, I think a lot of people, especially when they buy, sell too often, end up hurting themselves. But yeah, 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 I think that's a great stat. What's the one thing that you think people should be talking about more right now in finance? 
is there something that you feel like you're early to and you're you're like, why are others not getting this? <laughs> it's a little unpopular, but I'll say it. I think the emergency fund is so overblown and I get a lot of hate and flack for saying that, but there are these beliefs that, oh, you should save up a six month emergency fund. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, the first thing you should do, look, if you got credit card debt, get out of the credit card debt. But beyond that six month emergency fund, my credit card can be my emergency fund. This sounds extreme, but my goal is not to use my emergency fund. It's an emergency fund. I don't want to use my credit card and like take a cash advance or whatever for my credit card unless it's seriously like, oh crap, things have hit fan here, this is bad. And so that really preserves it as an emergency tool for me. So keep my credit cards paid off. Now I want no emergency fund. What am I gonna do instead? I'm not gonna spend my money, but I'm gonna throw everything I've got into stocks. Everything I've got into the stock market. My belief is that your best emergency fund is actually the stock market. People are like, oh, but stocks can go down. Yeah, my emergency fund in stocks is gonna double before your savings account is gonna double many times over. And the beautiful thing about that is people are like, yeah, but Kevin, stocks could sell off 50% fine. I still have 50% there as an emergency fund. It's not like all my companies that I invest in are going to go bankrupt. I can always sell some of the stocks when I need to, if I need to, but that becomes a true emergency fund because selling stocks is, Harvard did a study. And they said that $1 in a brokerage is almost 99% likely not to be sold, removed from that brokerage, not bought and sold, to be removed from that brokerage. You put a dollar in a brokerage account, it's very, very sticky. It's hard for you to take that money out of a brokerage account. $1 in a savings account is almost 100% likely to be spent. And that's because people, when they put their money into savings accounts, Generally, what happens is, oh, we really want to go on that Disney vacation or really want to go on that cruise. <laughs> ah, let's just borrow from the emergency fund and we'll just pay it back because they got a six month emergency fund. And that's a lot of money sitting around. So I do this crazy thing where I keep my bank accounts so close to zero that over the past two years, I've probably paid four or five overdraft fees because my accounts are so close to zero. And that does a few things. One, it gets all my money invested because I'm not spending it. It's all going to stocks. It keeps me really aware of the spending we are doing. And when I open up my bank account, I don't feel rich. I feel broke. So I'm motivated to work. The government in the United States has set things up in such a way that, golly, if you invest in businesses and you invest in stocks, you get so many other doors that open up. You got to invest. Do you think, because you said it's important to be fearless when investing in real estate, do you think that also goes for investing in stocks as well? Or do you think that the parameters are a little bit different? It depends what rules you set for yourself. The problem with stocks, even though this is a benefit, is because they're so liquid, people can make rash decisions and that's bad. With real estate, it's so difficult. It's so expensive to sell that ironically, you just end up buying and holding <laughs> because it's so hard to sell. It's so annoying and slow. With stocks, I think if you go in to companies with very, very high conviction or an index fund and you go in with high conviction that I have very strong belief that in 20, 30 years, this will be higher. Then you don't have to worry about the fluctuations. You don't have to sell. The big danger is getting into too short term of a mindset where, oh my gosh, I got to do what Wall Street's doing. Well, if Wall Street is rotating from tech to recovery, I should do that. Oh, they're rotating back. Well, then I should do that. The frequent back and forth, I worry, can sometimes hurt. With a long run mindset, you put your money in, you set it in there. I'm very bullish, let's just say, on, on Train America, <laughs> which is yeah. we're going to be better off in five, 10 years than where we are today.
yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, well, I'll ask one more question. So Robinhood's mission, and, and really my mission to a large extent, is democratize finance for all. And it seems like you're very in tune with that. What does that mean for you? What does democratize finance for all mean to you? I just love the fact that you can open up an app and link your bank account and invest in a company within minutes. That to me is so incredibly innovative. Obviously, there are many opportunities to do this throughout the finance space, but it really what happened is we've gone from this world of 10 years ago, oh, I got to call up Scott Trade, which doesn't exist anymore, and sign all these disclosures and forms. And it was really difficult to start trading. And then you, your first time looking at stocks, you're looking at this window with all these crazy things and all this crazy information. Nobody knows what the heck is going on. And there were all these commissions too that you were paying to get into investing. It was really difficult 10 years ago to get started. I remember wanting to buy my first Apple stocks. I'm like, why is it so hard? Like, why do I have yeah. to go through all this crap? I remember I had to go to the bank to wire money in, assign all these forms, mail off forms, and it was just complicated. Now with really the innovation of the app store and, and uh, how quickly we can go from not investing to investing, I just hope everybody does it. I just hope everyone starts investing and not think, oh, well, I'll just invest in the future. That's, I think, the biggest mistake is, oh, I'll just do it, you know, when I'm 25. I'll do it when I'm 30. I'll do it when I'm 35. No, 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 no. Right now. <laughs> do no. it right now. There's no reason not to do it right now because when you start, it grows on you and you start looking at your finances in a totally different way. But the hardest part is starting and starting has gotten a whole lot easier today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember I was at a dinner party in I think it was like 2006 or 2007. And there was a conversation about Netflix. And, you know, this was still fairly early in Netflix's history when they sent mail. <laughs> yeah, they were I think it was well before streaming. And people were like, it's so amazing. It's so much better than Blockbuster. I'm gonna buy the <laughs> stock. And I remember I was like, you know what, I want to buy this stock. But by the time I, I got home, I had forgotten about it. And I remembered four or five years later or something like that and kicked myself over it. Now you have people that can do that in the moment, right? And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I appreciate what you're doing with, with your viewers and really the thoughtfulness that you're kind of spreading a lot of this knowledge out. Thank you for that. No, thank you. I think this was a, a really fun conversation. A lot of people probably are looking for a little bit more insight about what you do and how they can replicate some of those things themselves. Absolutely. Hey, the more people talking about finance and investing, the better. I think it's such a wonderful world. I think it's ironically still very arcane for so many people. And the more people talking about it, the less unfamiliar it becomes, which is a benefit for everyone. Could not agree more. Well, Kevin, thanks again for all your time and be well, good sir. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principal is possible. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their company. The preceding investing experiences are unique to the individual. Your results will differ. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast.